Chapter Twenty Four of Ravensdene Court by J. S. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Silk Cap. I glanced round. Lorrimore, after an inspection of the dead men, had walked aside with the lieutenant and was in close conversation with him. I too drew the detective away to the side of the yawl. Scarterfield, I said in a whisper. I've grounds for believing that the fourth Chinaman is Lorrimore's servant, Wing. The man we saw at Ravensdean Court? Just so, said I, and who went off to London, you remember, to see what he could do in the way of discovering the other Chinaman, Lo Tu Fen. Yes, I remember that, he answered. There is Lo Tu Fen, I said, pointing to one of the silent figures, and I think that Wing not only discovered him, but came aboard this vessel with him, as part of a crew which Baxter and his French friend got together at Limehouse or Poplar. As I say, I've grounds for thinking it. Scarterfield looked round, glanced at the shore, and shook his head. I'm all in the dark about some things, he said. I got on the track of this craft, I'll tell you how later, and found she'd come up this coast, and we got the authorities to send this destroyer after her came with her hell for leather i can tell you from harwich but i don't know a lot that i want to know baxter now you're sure that man lying dead there is the baxter we heard of at blythe and traced to hull certain said i listen and i'll give you a brief account of what's happened since yesterday and of what i've learned since then and it will make things clear to you standing there where the beauty of the fresh morning and the charm of sky and sea made a striking contrast to the horror of our immediate surroundings i told him as concisely as i could of how miss raven and myself had fallen into the hands of netherfield baxter and the frenchman of what had happened to me on board and at somewhat greater length of baxter's story of his own career as it related to his share in the theft of the monastic treasure from the bank at blyth his connection with the elizabeth robinson and his knowledge of the brothers quick nor did i forget baxter's theory about the rubies and at that scarterfield obviously pricked his ears now there's something in that he said with a regretful glance at the place where baxter's dead body lay under its sheet i wish that fellow had been alive to tell more for he's right about those rubies quite right the quicks had em two of em you know that i exclaimed i'll tell you he answered after we parted i was very busy investigating matters still further in devonport and in london and through the newspapers of course i got in touch with the man who told me a lot he came to headquarters in london asking for me wouldn't tell any of our people there anything it was a day or two before i got at close quarters with him for when he called i was away at the time he left an address in hatton gardens a mr isidore baubenheimer dealer as you may conclude in precious stones well i drove off at once to see him he told me a queer tale he said that he'd only just come back from amsterdam and paris or he'd have been in communication with me earlier while he'd been away he said he'd read the english newspapers and seen a good deal about the two murders at saltash and ravensdean court and he believed that he could throw some light on them for he felt sure that either noah quick 
or Salter Quick, was identical with the man with whom he had not so long ago talked over the question of the value of certain stones which the man possessed. But I'll show you Baubenheimer's own words. I got him to make a clear statement of the whole thing, and had it taken down in black and white, and I have a typed copy of it in my pocket-book. Glance over it for yourself." He produced a sheet of paper, folded and endorsed, and handed to me. It ran thus. My place of business in Hatton Garden is a few doors away from the Hatton Garden entrance to the old Mitre Tavern, which lies between that street and Ely Place. On, as far as I can remember, the 7th or 8th of March last, I went into the Mitre about half-past eleven o'clock one morning, expecting to meet a friend of mine who was often there about that time. He hadn't come in. I sat down with a drink and a cigar to wait for him. In the little room where I sat there were three other men. Two of them were men that I knew, men who dealt in diamonds in a smallish way. The other was a stranger, a thick-set, middle-aged, seafaring sort of man, hard-bitten, dressed in a blue serge suit of nautical cut. I could tell from his hands and his general appearance that he'd knocked about the world in his time. Just then he was smoking a cigar and had a tumbler of rum and water before him, and he was watching, with a good deal of interest, the other two, who, close by, were showing each other a quantity of loose diamonds, which evidently, to the seafaring man's amazement, they spread out openly on their palms. After a bit they got up and went out, and the stranger glanced at me. Now I am, as you see, something of the nautical sort myself, bearded and bronzed and all that. I'm continually crossing the North Sea, and it may be he thought I was of his own occupation. Anyway, he looked at me as if wanting to talk. I reckon they think nothing of pulling out a fistful of them things hereabouts, mister, he said. No more to them than sovereigns and half-sovereigns and banknotes is to bank clerks. That's about it, said I. You'll see them shown in the open street outside. Trade of this part of London, isn't it? he asked. Just so, said I. I'm in it myself. He gave me a sharp, inquiring look at that. Ah, he remarked, then you'll be a gentleman as knows the valley of a thing of that sort when you sees it? Well, I think so, I answered. I've been in the trade all my life. Have you got anything to dispose of? I see you're a seafaring man, and I've known sailors who brought something nice home now and then. Same here, said he, but I never known a man as brought anything half as good as what I have. Ah, said I, then you have something? That's what I come into this here neighborhood for this morning, he answered. I have something, and a friend of mine, says he to me, Hatton Garden, he says, is the port for you, they eats and drinks and wallers and them sort of things down that way, he says. So I steers for this here, only I don't know no fish, you see, as I could put the question to what I wants to ask. Put it to me, said I, drawing out my card case. There's my card, and you can ask anybody within half a square mile if they don't know me for a trustworthy man. What is it you've got? I went on, never dreaming that he'd got anything at all of great value. I'll give you an idea of its worth in two minutes. But he glanced round at the door and shook his head. Not here, mister, he said. I wouldn't let the light of day shine on what I got in a public place like this, not know-how. But, he added, 
I see you have a office and all that. I ain't undisposed to go there with you, if you like. You seem an honest man. Come on, then, I said. My office is just round the corner, and though I've clerks in it, we'll be private enough there. Right you are, mister, he answered, and he drank off his rum, and we went out and round to my office. I took him into my private room. I had a young lady clerk in there. She'd remember this man well enough and he looked at her, and then at me. "'Send the girl away,' he muttered. "'There's a matter of undressing, d'ye see, in getting at what I want to show you.' I sent her out of the room and sat down at my desk. He took off his overcoat, his coat, and his waistcoat, shoved his hand into some secret receptacle that seemed to be hidden in the band of his trousers, somewhere behind the small of his back, and after some acrobatic contortions and twistings, lugged out a sort of canvas parcel the folds of which he unwrapped leisurely and suddenly coming close to me he laid the canvas down on my blotting-pad and i found myself staring at some dozen or so of the most magnificent pearls i had ever set eyes on and a couple of rubies which i knew to be priceless i was never more astonished in my life but he was cool as a cucumber "'What do you think of that lot, mister?' he asked. "'I reckon you don't see a little lot of that quality every day.' "'No, my friend,' said I, "'nor every year either, nor every ten years. "'Where on earth did you get them?' "'Away east,' said he, "'and I've had them some time, "'not being particular about selling them, "'but I've settled down in England now, "'and I think I will sell them "'and buy house property with the money.' "'What do you fix their valley at now, mister? "'Thereabouts, anyway.' "'Good heavens, man,' I said. "'They're worth a great deal of money, a great deal.' "'I'm very well aware of that, mister,' he answered. "'Very well aware, indeed. Nobody better. "'I seen a deal of things in my time, and I ain't no fool.' "'You really want to sell them?' I asked. "'If I get the full price,' said he, "'and that, of course, would be a big un.' The thing to do, I said, would be to find somebody who wants to complete a particularly fine set of pearls, some very rich woman who'd stick at nothing. The same remark applies to the rubies. Maybe you could come across some customer, he suggested. No doubt in a little time, I answered. Well, he said, I'm going up north. I've a bit of business that way, and I reckon I'll be back here in London in a week or so. I'll call in then, mister, and if you found anybody that's likely to deal, I'll show him the goods with pleasure. You'd better leave them with me and let me show them to some possible buyers, I said. But he was already folding up his canvas wrapping again. Governor, he answered, I can see as how you're an honest man, and I treats you as such, and so will, but I couldn't have them things out of my possession for one minute until I sells them. I've a brother, mister, he added, as owns half a share in em, d'ye see, and I holds myself responsible to him. But now that you've seen em, governor, find a buyer, or buyers. I'll shove my bows round that door of yours again this day week. And with that he restored his treasures to their hiding-place, assumed his garments once more, and remarking that he had trained to catch, hastened off, again assuring me that he would call in a week on his return from the north. I folded up the statement and restored it to Scarterfield. "'What do you think of that?' he asked. 
Salter Quick, without a doubt, I answered. It corroborates Baxter's story of the rubies. He didn't mention any pearls. And I think now, Scarterfield, that Salter Quick's murder lies at the door of one of those Chinamen who in their turn are lying dead before us. Well, and that's what I think, said he. Though however a Chinaman could be about this coast without the local police learning something of it at the time they were inquiring into the murder beats me. However, there it is. I feel sure of it. And I was going to tell you. I got wind of this yawl down Limehouse way. I found out that she'd been in the Thames, and that her owner had enlisted a small crew of Chinamen, and had gone away with them, and I found out further that she'd been seen off the Norfolk coast going north. So then I pitched a hot and strong story to the authorities about piracy and all manner of things, and they sent this destroyer in search of Baxter and me honour. If we'd only been twelve hours sooner. Lorimore and the lieutenant came up to us. My men have the fire completely beaten, said the lieutenant, glancing at Scarterfield. If you want to look around. We began a thorough examination of the yawl, in the endeavour to reconstruct the affair of the early morning, for there were all the elements of a strange mystery in that, and curiosity about the whole thing was as strong in me as in Scarterfield. We knew now many things that we had not known twenty-four hours before. One was that the many affairs, dark and nefarious, of Netherfield Baxter had nothing to do with the murders of Noah and Salter Quick. Another that those murders without doubt arose from the brothers' possession of the pearls and rubies which Salter had shown to the Hatton Garden diamond merchant. All things considered, it seemed to me that the explanation of the mystery rested in some such theory as this. The Chinaman, Lo Chu Fen, doubtless knew as well as Baxter and his French friend that the Quicks were in possession of the rubies stolen from the heathen temple in southern China. No doubt he had become acquainted with that fact when the marooned party from the Elizabeth Robinson were on the intimate terms of men united by a common fate on the lonely island. Drifting eventually to England, True had probably discovered the whereabouts of the two brothers, had somehow found that the rubies were still in their possession, might possibly have been in personal touch with Salter or with Noah, had taken others of his compatriots, discovered in the Chinese quarters of the East End, into his confidence, and engineered a secret conspiracy for securing the valuables. He himself had probably tracked Salter to the lonely bit of shore near Ravensdean Court. Associates of his had no doubt fallen upon Noah at Salthash. But how had all this led up to the attack of the Chinese on Baxter and the Frenchman? And who was the man who, leaving every other member of the Yall's company dead or dying, and who had exchanged those last shots with Netherfield Baxter, had escaped to the shore and was now, no doubt, endeavouring to make a final bid for liberty. Reckoning up everything we saw, it seemed to me, from my knowledge of the preceding incidents, that the drug which the Chinese gentleman, as Baxter had been pleased to style him, had not had the effects that he desired and anticipated, and that one or the other of the two men to whom it had been administered had been aroused from sleep before any attack could be made on both. I figured things in this way. Baxter, or the Frenchman, or both, had awakened and missed the Chinaman. 
one or both had turned out to seek him had discovered that miss raven and i were missing had scented danger to themselves found the chinese up to some game and opened fire on them evidently the first fighting as i had gathered from the revolver shots had been sharp and decisive i formed the conclusion that when it was over there were only two men left alive of whom one was baxter and the other the man whom we had seen escaping in the boat baxter i believed had put up some sort of barricade and watched his enemy from it that he himself was already seriously wounded i gathered from two facts one that his body had several superficial wounds on arms and shoulders and that in the cabin behind the hastily constructed barricade sheets had been torn into strips for bandages which we found on these wounds where as far as he could he had roughly twisted them then according to my thinking he had eventually seen the other survivor who was probably in like case with himself as regards superficial wounds endeavouring to make off and emerging from his shelter had fired on him from the side of the yawl only to be killed himself by return fire there was no mistaking the effect of that last shot chance shot or well-directed aim it had done for netherfield baxter and he had crumpled up and died where he dropped a significant exclamation from scarterfield called me to his side he aided by one of the blue jackets was examining the body of lo chu fen look here he murmured as i went up to him this chap has been searched after he was dead i mean there's a body belt that he wore it's been violently torn from him his clothing ripped to get at it and the belt itself hacked to pieces in the endeavour to find something whose work has that been the work of the man who got away in the boat said i of course he's been after those rubies and pearls scarterfield we must be after him he said you say you think he was wounded in getting away he was certainly wounded i affirmed i saw him fall headlong in the boat after the first shot he recovered himself fired the shot which no doubt finished baxter and must have been wounded again for the two men again fired simultaneously and the man in the boat swayed at that second shot but once more he pulled himself together and rowed away well if he's wounded he can't get far without attracting notice declared scarterfield we'll organize a search for him presently but first let's have a look into the quarters that these chinamen occupied the smoke of the fire which seemed to have broken out in the forecastle and had been confined to it by the efforts of the sailors from the destroyer had now almost cleared away and we went forward to the galley the fire had not spread to that and after the scenes of blood and violence astern and in the cabin the place looked refreshingly spick and span there was indeed an unusual air of neatness and cleanliness about it the various pots and pans shone gaily in the sun's glittering lights every utensil was in its place evidently the galley's controlling spirit had been a meticulously careful person who hated disorder as heartily as dirt and on a shelf near the stove was laid out what i took to be the things which the vanished cook whoever he might be had destined for breakfast a tempting one of kidneys and bacon soles eggs a curry i gathered from this and pointed my conclusion out to scarterfield 
that the presiding genius of the galley had had no idea of the mutiny into which he had been plunged soon after midnight. Ay, said Scarterfield, just so, I see your point. And you think that man of Lorimer's, Wing, was aboard, and if so, he's the man who escaped? I've strong suspicions, said I, yet they were based on a plum cake. Well, and I've known of worse clues, he rejoined, but I wonder. Now, if only we knew... Just then Lorimore came along, poking his head into the galley. He suddenly uttered a sharp exclamation, and reached an arm to a black silk cap, which hung from a peg on the boarding above. "'That's wings,' he said, in emphatic tones. "'I saw him make that cap himself.'" End of chapter 24